for several months now, <clears throat> we've been listening to a letter that we think Paul wrote to a bunch of fledgling churches. And we think that that letter is out to boil down for those who read it, two things. What is the truth of the gospel and what kind of life proceeds from it? We've spoken of that truth in terms of a song, songs that stick with you, songs that work their world deeply into you, that are there readily available, that you sing whenever you need to, especially when the world is dark and dour. And that that song, that inward music as we've referred to it, it has implications. It has implications that we've considered to be the dance, we're calling it. What is that dance, that life that responds and is prompted by the inward music of the gospel? That's been our burden through the entirety of the series and it will be until we're done. To get at the heart of where we're going this morning, I want to show you a scene from Pride and Prejudice. There are no words in this scene, but you will know exactly what's being conveyed. And it is one of several scenes in that whole film that's in the middle of a dance. And here we see our two protagonists looking at each other in ways that they have not looked before. And you will know what the scene is about by the time it's over, but what I really want to bring your attention to is what happens at the beginning and in the end of the scene. What to you might seem entirely incidental is actually central to where we're headed and where we've already been in our worship this morning. So take it in, in all its beauty and elegance. I love this dance. Indeed, most invigorating. That's a movie about a love that begins, or that seems at first to be entirely improbable, and then it quickly manifests in something that becomes inevitable. And, and But for the one line, I missed that, it's all about in the eyes. What they see, what they begin to see, what they had not seen before, and how it comes over them as if they are the only ones in the room and everything else pales in comparison. But what happened at the beginning and the end of the scene wasn't the music, they bowed. There was a form of mutual respect in that moment to one another and to the dance. Now to us, incidental, customary, it's the thing you did. And for those of you who are steeped far more deeply in the knowledge of dance, at some point the idea of reverence gets baked in to the whole notion of dancing. You've seen it before. You ever go to ballets or you go to river dance or whatever it might be, 
What do they do at the end? Or what do they do at the beginning with each stance? They bow to each other. And what do they do at the end? They bow to each other, and then they bow at the congregation or the audience that's come to honor them in the dance. There's something about respect and reverence that is baked into the dance. It's more than customary. There's something to that. that. That's where we're headed today. What is it about this reverence that is part and parcel of the dance? We have to recover that. That's what's being recovered at Asbury. It's what we're trying to recover even in our moment together for however long or short it lasts. What is that life that lives with reverence in light of what he has done for us in the gospel? We're going to consider that possibility through a text that is actually going to focus more on the opposite of reverence, not reverence, but irreverence. And we're going to tease that out with as much care as we can, even though Paul is unapologetic about going straight for the jugular on the things that demonstrate irreverence. So we're going to consider what is the reverence of the dance under three heads, and we're going to kind of keep with the metaphor of dance here by talking about what are the missteps, what are errors of the dance that don't fit it? Why are they missteps? And then most importantly, what, what can be done <clears throat> that we might avoid them or recover from them? We're going to back up just a little bit into where we were last week and get a running start, but we're in Ephesians chapter 5. We'll start in verse 1. I wonder if you could stand to focus your attention in this direction. Ephesians 5, start in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is the pointed word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Like I said, we, we got a running start, and we began <clears throat> with an understanding of what is life in the dance, and we spent last week talking about that life in this dance, in response to the gospel, is a life out to imitate God, <clears throat> not in the characteristics that are entirely unique to deity, but in the characteristics that he has bestowed unto us and created us in what it means to be made in the image of God. And we said specifically last week that those who imitate God walk in love. Love leads. Love prevails. 
Love is demonstrated in the community of faith by which we learn to desire that which is loving. We learn to imitate that love by seeing it modeled in front of us in this community, not just by, not even by listening to these dudes flip his, flap his gums. That was our argument last week. But then, in considering that, that love is at the center of things, that it's the dominant controlling principle, we argued from the man with great hair, Soren Kierkegaard. He said this, infinite humiliation and grace and then a striving in love born of gratitude. This is Christianity. It is not a striving to be loved by the Lord. It is a striving to walk in love as one who believes they are loved already and eternally by God. That's the gospel. That's the news. It's something we live into. It's not something we live up to. Love, you would agree, if you know anything about it, is not an emotion. Now, emotions accompany it often, not always the same emotions. Anger and affection can both be manifestations of love. But love is not primarily an emotion. Love is primarily an action. An action that seeks to do the welfare and the good of another. That's love. And therefore, by definition... Love is self-forgetful. Love takes no thought of self. Love is thinking of the other irrespective of how well the one responds to you in kind. Love is selfless. Bookmark that. Because that's what, what we're about to hear is the unholy trinity of temptations. And what's common to all of them is that they have self-absorption at their center. That's what love is. That's what imitating God is. And so now we need to talk about what is the opposite of that. That's reverence, love. Now let's talk about irreverence. And you know that he's changing his tune because he starts verse 3 with a but. It's a contrast. He wants to draw a contrast to what it means to walk in love. And now he wants to talk about everything that is the absence of love because it's full of self. And so he says in verse 3, you heard it once, you're going to hear it again, sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. You hear that, and, you know, we're talking about revival, and uh, what's the name of the actor in The Apostle? Robert Duvall, right? He does tent revivals. And so you hear the word revival, and maybe your head automatically goes to tent revivals and this profound display of emotion, and then everybody leaves, and it's kind of like nothing changes. Revival is something that changes, something that works deeply to consider what it means to love the Lord and to displace everything that is contrary to it. But I want to make sure that you hear Paul there in verse 3 appropriately. I want you to hear the tone. Now, I wasn't there when Paul wrote it. I wasn't there. Now, Mickey Beelan was there. <laughs> he was in grade school then, but he was there. But I, I just want, not really, Mickey. Love you, man. Um, I want you to make sure you hear the tone of Paul correctly before we go any further, because it is quite possible you hear a sneer in his voice. And I, I want to show you a scene from Walk the Line 
when June Carter is just minding her own business in a convenience store, and, well, there's this little encounter that she has with a clerk. Oh, can I help you? Oh, um, I'm looking for some lace. Well, the sewing store on Santa always got lace. Thank you. You know, your ma and pa are good Christians in a world gone to pot. Well, I'll tell them you said that. I'm surprised they still speak to you after that stunt with Carl Smith. Divorce is an abomination. Marriage, it's for life. I'm sorry I let you down, ma'am. I didn't know that was a thing if you were a clerk back in the 50s. Um, but in that moment, divorce is a tragedy. But in her eyes and in her tone, is there any sense in which you thought that that woman had any love for June Carter? <laughs> I think we need to work on our people skills, ma'am. I want to make sure that in what you're going to hear from Paul, that you don't hear it like that. Because if at the center of imitating God is a love, then even in speaking of what is sin and what is unholy, what is contrary to his will and tragic to our life, that if love is not at the center of that, then you have no business even speaking of it. Verse 3 is really kind of a telling moment. There's, a, there's an old grizzled theologian named Stanley Hauerwas. Who, uh, who said this, any religion that does not tell you what to do with your pots, your pans, and your private parts cannot be interesting. <laughs> and the back row right there is going, <laughs> he said private parts. Um, <laughs> if God became flesh, that you might become like him, then what faith doesn't have any kind of concern or regard for every part of you? But to hear this passage is kind of like a, a Rorschach test, an inkblot test. Remember the, back in the, I don't know, you win. That's a, that's a Rorschach test. It was a, it's, a, it's a thing where they inkblot and then, and then they show it to people and they say, what do you see here? And what you say you see is sort of a window into who you are. What you perceive indicates what you are like, what you think. And so people say, it's a moth. And then other people say, it's a pelvis. And they say, oh, okay, well, we should talk. And the inkblot test is all kind of an indication of what you see. And when you listen to verse 3, it's kind of an inkblot test for where you are. Because there are some folks that only heard me say the word sexual immorality. And the whole covetousness stuff, yeah, 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 yeah. And then there's others of you, or maybe others, that heard the word covetousness, this materialistic idolatry, but none of the immorality part. And Paul talks about both. And we, let's go there a little bit briefly. Parents, relax. I'm going to be as careful as I can and as respectful as I can. Because when we're talking about that immorality of which he speaks, it's the Greek word porneia. And you know what words come from that Greek word. But it speaks broadly about a range of choices and affections and behaviors that kind of center on the idea of taking physical intimacy and taking it outside of 
the marital context for which it was invited. That for you to ignore the unitive, procreative, protective aspects of what physical intimacy is, there's a consequence. For you to remove the vulnerability that is attendant to physical intimacy, and you take that out of that context in which there is trust and commitment and acknowledgement that I with you and will never forsake you, come what may, if you take it out of that context, you, there is a consequence. And that consequence has far-reaching effects for yourself in all ways. And to speak of that consequence, you can say that the consequence is, or you can describe what he's talking about there is just bad. But I think it might be more precise and more appropriate that what he's warning of here is something that we might call foolishness. What is foolishness? It is when one is bound and determined to walk in a way in which they do not respect the costs and only see the benefits. They do not take into account that the cost is far greater than whatever benefit they think is present. That's folly. You go after things that have greater cost to you than the benefit, you're a fool. And that's the kind of immorality of which he speaks. And look, I'm talking about that, and many of you in this room are like, yeah, okay. Yeah, you're a pastor. It's what we'd expect to say, expect to, pay, expect to hear. Why are you so focused on what people do in their bedroom or what songs get sung on the Grammys? Like, why is that, right? Nobody got that. Um, <laughs> fine. How about I bring to you a voice that I've actually referred to earlier when we went through the Ten Commandments and we started talking about Bachelor and I commit adultery. How about a British author who has absolutely no foot in the church, no stated commitment to any kind of faith tradition, and who will not have, in her most recent book, Ephesians 5, listed as a footnote. Her name's Louise Perry. She's a Brit. She just wrote an art, a book that came out this year called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And she is very frank as someone who comes from a tradition who has now kind of reflected upon what the last 75 years has done. And she speaks of hookup culture and how it is an attempt. It demands that women begin to suppress some of their own intuitions in order to match the same drive that men possess and therefore try to accommodate men in their quest for no-strings-attached intimacy. And she's honest enough to say that there are lots of women out there that are fine with that. And then there's a lot more out there that find it rather unsettling and unpleasant and feel all this cognitive dissonance as they submit to it. And then so therefore she asks this question, what's the solution to that? Hookup culture, she says, sorry, back up. Hookup culture, she says, is a solution to the mismatch that benefits some men at the expense of most women. So she asks, what's the solution? Where do we go from here? She says, in order to change the incentive structure, we would need a technology that discourages short-termism and male behavior, protects the economic interests of mothers, and creates a stable environment for the raising of children. What would that be? We do already have such a technology, even if it's old, clunky, and prone to periodic failure. It's called monogamous marriage. <laughs> Eureka. In other words, she's talking about Look at the carnage where Pornea has taken us. It's folly to just label it bad 
doesn't, it almost does a disservice to you because then you just sort of, ew, ew. No. <sighs> Look, I'm tired of saying this tongue in cheek, but if um, you want to live out um, Sam Smith and Lisa Petra song, go for it. And then just call me in 10 years and let me know how it went. Did it feel freeing? That's all I'll say about that. I'm just talking about here's somebody who is honest enough to say, if you take all of that wisdom about where, where morality is from on your physical intimacy, if you take all of that out of the context, you have signed yourself up for something that you didn't bargain for. That's the whole part about immorality. Now, again, let's make sure we're hearing it in whole. So let's talk about covetousness. Again, not a word that you and I typically use anymore. Oh, you're, well, you, in our household, you're, you're coveting the sausage, right? The, the, favorite, the, the most uh, wonderful line we've heard recently is from, I can't remember the, which chef it is. It goes, what is this culinary phenomenon called leftover bacon? What is that? <laughs> There's no such thing. There's leftover. <laughs> let's, let's talk about covetousness. You, you heard us talk about it back in, back in the summer when we talked about the Decalogue, the 10th commandment, right? It's about a certain kind of wanting. It is wanting what you do not have. It is wanting what somebody else has and not wanting them to have it, but wanting you to have it. It's also a wanting that you feel like is so absolutely essential to your well-being that if you don't have it, you're nothing and you'll never be happy. And it's the one commandment of the Ten Commandments that it's not a behavior. It's not a, I'm just not going to do this. It's talking about the condition of your heart. And it's the one commandment that reminds us all that there is no fulfilling of any commandment until you throw yourself upon the mercy and assistance of God's grace. Because I just can't flip off the coveting switch. It's there and it's real. And you're in a culture that breeds it. Remember last week we talked about how desire in many cases, if you're not aware of it, is a desire that is learned, not because you looked at something and started to want it, but because you saw somebody else and somebody else and somebody else and somebody else wanting it, and because they wanted it, suddenly you thought, I, I, I guess I should want that too. What advertisement doesn't play off of that thing very latent and subtle in our nature? Oh, you don't have it? <laughs> when you have an economic structure that prides itself and depends upon growth in all places, in all ways, naturally, some things that are just wants, you start to believe they are needs. Well, Paul is saying that covetousness idolatry of that which you do not have, which you think you absolutely need in order to be happy, that's as foolish and short-sighted as the immorality of which he's just spoken. So let me marshal two old voices and one new voice to kind of corroborate both the point and its, and its opposite. There's a wonderful book from the 15th century by, um, uh, I can't remember where he lives, but Thomas Akempis. Has anybody ever picked up a copy of Thomas Akempis's The Imitation of Christ? Anybody know that one? Yeah. Some of you. 
it's, it's, it's actually kind of a devotional book. Each of the chapters, you could, it's devotional. And it's called The Imitation of Christ. And he says many things in that book about what does it mean to imitate the Lord in Jesus? Is this the one? Yeah. One of the things he says about idolatry is this. It is vanity to seek after and trust in the riches that shall perish. It is vanity to covet honors and to lift ourselves up on high. It's vanity to follow the desires of the flesh and be led by them. For this shall bring misery at the last. It is vanity to desire a long life and to have a little care for a good life. It is vanity to take thought only for the life which now is and not to look forward for the things which shall be hereafter. It's vanity to love that which quickly passes away and not to hasten where eternal joy abides. All of those things rattled off like a machine gun in rapid succession is talking about idolatry. Of making the things that will not endure as if they will be eternal. And it's folly to walk in them. And we're all susceptible to them. We think we need them. But what we really do is just we've just been taught to want them. St. Basil the Great was a bishop of the 4th century. I read a sermon of his this week called uh, A Sermon to the Rich, which would apply to anybody in this room. You may not think of yourself rich, but compared to most of the world and most of history, you're living it up. And he said all sorts of things. And one of the things in that sermon, all of this stuff is in the resource doc this week if you want to back it up. Maybe you don't want to. <laughs> what I'm going to say should seem to you no greater paradox. It's utterly, absolutely true. When wealth is dispersed in the way the Lord advises, it naturally stays put. But when held back, it's transferred to another. If you hoard it, you won't keep it. If you scatter, you won't lose. He is writing at a time of famine. He is pushing back against the idolatry of wealth and of all things. And he is lamenting the fact that nobody seems to care about the need. A newer voice that speaks to this last question, I, it's, the same, it's the same idea. Tara Isabel Burden, who I introduced to you a couple years ago. She wrote a book um, a few book years ago called Strange Rights, talking about how this, the, the upcoming generation hasn't cast off the idea of spirituality. They've just kind of taken a bunch of things from different places and molded it into something else, from Harry Potter to all sorts of things. But she wrote an article last week about this. Our need as human beings does not lie simply in the accumulation of personal profit but instead lies in awakening to joy, to justice, and to love. We do not make ourselves, and therefore we cannot live only for ourselves. Idolatry is a life for the self and the self alone. And it comes over us in subtle ways. And that's why Thomas Akempis might summarize this whole part by saying this. It is not really a small thing when in small things we resist the self. When we resist the self, we are walking in love. And all of those three things you just heard there, I mean, I know I summarized impurity there, but immorality, impurity, idolatry, and covetousness, that is walking with you at the center of all things. Love has a different priority. Those are the actions that are missteps. But what's also a misstep is not just what we do with our bodies, but what we do with our mouths, what we do with our words. In verse 5, you heard it put in a way that probably gets up in your business a lot right now. Ready? 
Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Oh, really? All of that? It's the only time those words that are translated here are in, are in the original language are ever used in the entire New Testament. So we're at a loss to be able to ask Paul, what do you mean? Like, where does it work? Because you don't ever see it anywhere else in the entire New Testament. So we've got to rely upon the English translation to get to our understanding. But whatever he means, whether we are precise or even off on what those three words mean, he is saying there is some speech that is off limits for a Christian. I'm not talking about the legality of speech. I'm not talking about freedom of speech. That's a whole different question. I'm talking about the kind of speech that has a certain folly to it. That there is a wisdom that follows in light of what it means to be deeply loved by God and the wisdom that flows from that belief has an impact on the words that we choose. So Ralphie, he goes to, right? He goes to help his dad change the tire in the middle of the cold and he makes a misstep and he trips and he sends all of the lug nuts off into the darkness and the snow of the evening. And well, you know what he says, it wasn't fudge. And uh, what happens? Mom says, I, what? Right? And then we, we do the proverbial washing your mouth out with soap. And you and I watch that and we look at it and go, oh, no. <laughs> that's cute. How old? What about that? What do we think of that? Is, is that just sort of an idea that has its history there? Or is there something to that? Paul is arguing in this moment that words are always more than words. Words are always more than content. Words reveal the heart. Words are kind of an indicator. Our habitual choices of words indicate something that is true of us within. And that's not just unique to Paul. Jesus said as much. In Luke 6, what does he say? The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, what? His mouth speaks. That there is something indicative in your heart by the words that you choose. And I think you would agree with that. When you're having a bad day, what do your words do? And what does that reveal? Not just your moment, maybe something else. I think you'd also agree, though, that words are not just a barometer of your heart. They also form it. They shape it. It becomes sort of this mutual thing. Words have a point, and words have content, but words have an effect. They, you plant a seed in the ground, and it sprouts up from within the seed. So what's beneath the ground, you begin to see by what comes up from above the ground. But then what happens to a flower? At some point, it begins to seed itself out into the world, and now there's more of itself. It begins to shape the landscape in which it finds itself. Our words reveal us. They also form us. If words can make you sore. People have said things to you in your life that have just made you sore, like you are walking on thin air. It's wonderful. 
If that is true, whether you're the recipient of those words or the one who gives those words, if that is true, then there are also words that can bring somebody to their knees, to their depths. If words are like that, then words are always more than words. It's these actions that I've spoken of and these words that constitute missteps. They are part of the dance of the gospel and they are folly. But folly is something we would say is kind of implicit in what Paul is talking about there. He never says, this is just foolish, don't do that. He gives his own reasons why we might think of these self-absorbed actions as something more than just foolish. And he gives us three. Why are these missteps? In verse 5 and 6, or verse 4 and 5, he, he uses two phrases. What is not proper among the saints and what is out of place. You might say that his three reasons have all that in common. Why are those actions and words that are full of self, what's wrong with them? They don't fit. They are appalling. They don't fit with your... It's, it's as appalling... To use maybe a very difficult analogy, it, it would be like building a McDonald's at Auschwitz. You, you, you wouldn't do that. It wouldn't just be awkward, it would be appalling. And Paul is arguing that those practices, calling for that kind of repentance, is on the basis of the fact that it does not fit with our identity, first of all. It doesn't fit. It's not proper among the saints. It's out of place. But at the same time that it is not proper, doesn't fit with our identity, it is also not fitful for our destiny. Because he says those who are habitually committed to these things, they need to know this. They have no inheritance in the kingdom. If these are at our center, if these things form us and reveal us and they are us in such a way, they don't, you need to know that they don't, they're not going to last. They're not going to prevail. They will not part, be part of that world that will be without end, amen, in which there is no more tears and no more death. It doesn't fit with our identity. It doesn't fit with our identity. It doesn't fit with our destiny. And if it's true of that, it also doesn't fit with our family. Now, I'm, I'm kind of I'm stretching the meaning, or not stretching, kind of expanding the meaning of what Paul says here on this third idea, or this third reason why it doesn't fit. But when he says that the wrath of God upon these things is coming upon the sons of disobedience, if God is our Father, and if He's given us His Son, to make us his own on his work alone and on the basis of his grace alone. And Jesus is the head of that church of which you are part if your faith is in him. Then that is your family. And God's wrath is his settled hostility to anything that is out to disrupt or corrupt that which is his family. And he acts in real time and he will act finally and fully at some later time. 
But these things that are self-absorbed, that have no love as part of them, are by definition contrary to love, then it's not part of this family. What he is arguing in all of these things is that in him and by him and for him, some things work and other things don't. He roots out, he judges. These are the three deterrents to us being seduced by these things that obviously have attraction or affection. Otherwise, people wouldn't do them. But Paul offers us one last idea for what is meant to be a disincentive to those things. What is meant to be the one thing that holds us all together. He adds us one motive and one means so that we might recover from these missteps or avoid them altogether. And it all comes down to this really kind of interesting, odd contrast that he draws in verse 4. That when you first read it, you go, um, why, why does he do that? So listen to verse 4 again, but with the entirety of it. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude jucking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Instead of banter that harms and disparages and in some ways reflects something wrong with the self and means to act on the basis and for the good of the self alone, instead of all of that, let there be gratitude. Why would he make a contrast between those kinds of words and this heart of gratitude? Because I think he's saying this, gratitude is not just the opposite of those things. It is the antidote to their poison. The act of thanksgiving is an effort not to be taken in by those things that both reveal the heart and form it and corrupt it. But gratitude is the thing that pushes back against all of those things that enlarge the self and make the self the center of all things. Gratitude is essential to that. It's the antidote. How often do you see Jesus stopping in the middle of everything and giving thanks to his Father? I thank you that you have revealed these to little children and not to those who think they're know-it-alls. I thank you that you have made from little much more that many might eat. I thank you. He blesses both the bread and the wine, his body and his blood, before he goes to his cross. It's in gratitude that he does so. Paul himself in other places says, rejoice always, love all the time, and in all circumstances, give thanks. Why would he say that? Is it just to sort of push back against the, the horror of whatever you're facing? Maybe a little. But I think it's because what he knows is at the heart of our corruption. In Romans 1, he gives a really fast anthropology lesson. What is true of us and of our problem? And he says in Romans 1, For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. Suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, denial of the reality of God that they might see by just looking up into heavens, that there is something more to this that is not definable or reducible to that which you can see, observe, or quantify. 
And at the heart of every human is a refusal to honor him or to give thanks for him. That's at the heart of our corruption. Thanklessness. Ingratitude. Such that what Jesus comes to do in rescuing us and bringing us to himself on the basis of his own work on our behalf and dying for us on a cross is to restore to us what was always meant to be at the center of us in all things. Love that is grateful, even in all circumstances. And that's why I want to suggest to you, as maybe as oversimplified as it might seem, or as if I'm just saying to you, count your blessings, everyone. I, friends, there is more wisdom to that than you might know, or might respect, or might expect. What am I suggesting? Look, I know at the new year we make a bunch of resolutions and uh, we break them within six weeks. But I, I would like to suggest to you turning over a new leaf if you don't already have so. It, it might seem futile and given how hard one rhythms are and how easily they're abandoned, this might just be one more that you do it for a while and you're like, I can't do it anymore. And like, I'm just saying it's never too late to begin again. But there is an ancient practice that every night before they would retire, they would stop. And they wouldn't just put their head on the pillow and go to bed. But they would pause and they would think and they would pray. And in the midst of their prayers, they would consider their day. They would confess the things that they know upon reflection, if they could do it over again, they would have done differently. Sometimes in my household, before we put the kids to bed, we say, what's one thing you wish you could have done over and what's one thing you're glad that happened? That's sort of a miniature picture. Before they would retire, they would consider their day, consider where the wheels came off, confess their sins, and then make it a point to give thanks. Even if the whole of the day is something that you'd be glad just to have him take it back and do it over. To search, consider, and express your gratitude for what was one thing that was good. Because somehow in the middle of that, somehow in the practice of that, these other things that loom large, that seem attractive, may in time start to seem to lose their attraction. That's my that's my response to you, my, my recommendation, my counsel in response to this life, this dance, and the missteps, and why they're missteps, and how do we get out of it, is that you turn over a new life, that as you go to bed tonight, just don't, don't just put your head on the pillow and go to bed. How many nights have I gone to bed just feeling defeated, like, I forget it, you can have the day back. I'm inviting you and myself, before you go to bed, to start a process of reflecting, confessing, and then giving thanks in all circumstances. It is the dance and how we recover from it and how we avoid all the things that might disturb it. Let's pray. If, uh, if failing to honor you or give thanks for you is at the heart of our corruption, then we know that that is... Uh, not something that just sort of automatically switches off. We would ask that you might give us the will to begin again, uh, to recover what is true, 
uh, to remember what you've done, to give thanks for all the good things that have come our way, and to give thanks most of all that we have any good in our lives on the basis of mercy. So Father, help us to give thanks in all circumstances, but help us to give thanks and to sense that what you have done is nothing that we could have done ourselves and nothing that anything else that's good in this world could be a substitute for. Father, help us to renew us that we might be thankful in all things because of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.